0: The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Thank God He is a God who hears and answers prayer. And thank you who going together just now. Open your Bible with us this morning to the second chapter of the little short book of Philippians, and we want to look at just one paragraph, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Before we read this passage, let me underscore its significance by reminding you at least one Bible scholar has said this, these seven verses are the most important words the Apostle Paul ever uttered about the person of Jesus Christ. The most important words ever uttered by Paul about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at them beginning in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Actually, the setting here is the church at Philippi is plagued with dissension. They couldn't get along with one another. You ever heard a bunch of Christians that couldn't get along with one another? I never heard of such. They couldn't. And at least two of them are called by name. And it's interesting, the two ladies, the two he calls by name are women, Iodius and Synchic, and I'm sure the men were involved in it too, but Paul is appealing the church to come together, and as a motivation for that, he uses Jesus as a role model. And he says in verse 5, Let this man be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. Bond slave. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, that Jesus Christ is L-O-R-D. Say it. Lord. One more time. Lord. Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And one other supporting verse that is written by the same person, the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Some of you got Dr. Bob Pittman to write in your Bible and autograph your Bible when he was here. And every time I've seen him with that old left hand right, it's put in there, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. And here's what it says. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as L-O-R-D. What? Lord, and ourselves, your servants, your bond slave, for Jesus' sake. Listen to me carefully. It is not an exaggeration to say that the heart of biblical Christianity is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Christian faith stands or falls on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian, living a Christian life, the ultimate outcome of being a Christian stands or falls on the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what we want to do this morning is look at, then, this prime. Fundamental doctrine of all Christians everywhere, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Three things I want to fix in our mind as we look at it from a biblical standpoint. Number one, an examination of his lordship. That's what does the Bible say about him? Number two, the foundation to his lordship. By what authority can you and I say, He is Lord, and be confident of that? the foundation, the basis for it. And number three, every Bible doctrine has a practical side. That is, a wherefore, a therefore. So the third thing we'll look at are the implications of his lordship. If he is lord, so what? But look with me, first of all, at an examination of his lordship. First of all, what does our text say? The verses we read just a moment ago we won't examine all of them, but let me summarize for you two or three key verses here in Philippians chapter 2. The most important word, of course, is the word we're talking about, the word L-O-R-D, Lord. Originally, this word meant owner, master. It came to be applied to the Caesars of that day and time. They actually referred to them as Lord Caesar, Kyrios Kaisar, Caesar. Lord Caesar. Later in mythology, it came to be applied to gods and goddesses all over the Greco-Roman world. Basically, it means the one who is in charge. Our best English word that I know is the boss. When you and I settle who is the boss in our life, we are on road to understanding what the lordship of Christ is all about. But not just the word Lord, look at another word in this passage in your own Bible, and it's important for us to keep it in mind. He said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ, who being in the F-O-R-M, form of God. And we're going to contrast that word form with a word later in the text, fashion. The word form actually means an unchanging state, that is, Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, and that's what the Bible says. You remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were made by him, not, without him was not anything made that was made. Put it this way, in the beginning was Jesus, and all things were made by Jesus. Without Jesus was not anything that was made. That's who he was in the beginning, but <clears throat> when he was made, he was in the form of God, that mean word is basically his essential DNA that never changed. Your DNA never changes. He has never changed. He was God. He became God. He always will be God. He was 100% God, 100% man. As much God as if he were not man, as much man as if he were not God. Jesus was the God-man, and he came in the form of God. But then it says... He was found in fashion as a man. Now, that word is not a word that doesn't change. That's a word that continually changes, the word for fashion. I don't have to tell you, fashions are always changing. Sometimes the hemlines go up, sometimes they go down. Sometimes the ties get wider and sometimes they get narrower. Fashions change. And that word right here is a word that, for a, an external form that constantly is changing. You say, Charles, I don't know, I understand that. Well, you have been through fashion in your lifetime. You say, wait a minute now. When you were a baby, you were an infant. Then you became a little child. And then you kept growing, you became an older child. Then, boom, you became a hormonal teenager. Same person, same DNA, but you move from being an infant to a child, to an older child, to a hormonal teenager, and finally you moved into adulthood, and finally some of you became old people like me. And what I'm saying is, that word is the word that's used here. That's why the Bible could say about Jesus in chapter 2, verse 52 of Luke, he grew, he increased in wisdom and in stature. And in favor with God and man. Jesus was, his DNA never changed. He was God. He always has been God. He always will be God. But he was formed. He became a little baby. And then he grew. We know him when he's 12 years old in the temple. And then he was a 33 year old man on the cross. Now, all of that is to say, Paul is using all that imagery as the background for saying this tremendous statement about Jesus being. Lord, That's what he was. That's what the text says about him. But what did he himself say about himself? Well, think about it for a moment. Let's look at just one book of the Bible, the Gospel of John. Chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus said, I and the Father are O-N-E. Say it. One. Again, he said, he that's seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He said, before Abraham was, I am. There never has been a time when Jesus Christ was not. You remember when he was praying that great prayer in John 17? The only chapter in the Bible where a whole chapter is given to a prayer of Jesus is John 17. And in verse 5 of that prayer, he says, among other things, And now, Father, Restore unto me the glory I had with thee before the world was. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. He is stated to be God in the scripture. So when you examine his lordship, you understand from the text and from many things Jesus said, Jesus was Lord. But now quickly, look at the second thing that's so important. What about the foundation to his lordship. If I can say all these nice things about him to you, you've got to have a basis for what you believe. And the basis for the lordship of Jesus Christ really doesn't come until late in his ministry. Early on, they are animations, they are hints, they're suggestions he was lord. Let me mention just four of them to you quickly here. One hint that there's something different about this person is... His miraculous conception. Now, notice what I say. I didn't say his miraculous birth. Now, don't misunderstand or misquote me. You'll have me branded as a heretic. Personally, I don't think there was anything different, unusual about the birth of Jesus. As far as we know from the Bible, he was born in the normal, ordinary manner, except he wasn't in a hospital. He didn't have an obstetrician or a gynecologist, and it was in a stable, and best we can tell, Joseph may have been the midwife. Mary had all the birth pangs that every mother has ever had who's ever given birth to a child. He's born in the ordinary normal way. I'm emphasizing that because Jerome, the Roman Catholic scholar who translated the Latin Vulgate, said about Jesus that he passed through the wall of the womb of the Virgin Mary like sunlight passes through a window pane. Well, that's intriguing, it's interesting, but there's not a word in the Bible that says that's what happened. No, as far as we know, Jesus was born in the ordinary, natural manner. Hear me carefully now. The miracle was not in the way he was born. The miracle is nine months before he was born, the womb of the Virgin Mary was impregnated by the Spirit of the living God. That makes him not just unusual, it makes him unique. No one has ever been born that way. That's another reason. We call him Lord, his miraculous conception. But then the one who had been conceived miraculously lived a sinless life. You look at the life of Jesus. We did this last Sunday morning when we were getting ready to observe the Lord's Supper. Both his friends and his foes his friends and his enemies, his adversaries, his allies and his adversaries all said the same thing about his sinless character. Humanly speaking, there's probably no one in the Bible closer to Jesus than Simon Peter. He's named first every time the apostles are named. He was there with him in many different intimate settings. What does he say about him? One who knew him, frontwards and backwards, heard his sermons, heard his teachings, saw him performed the miracles, who even denied him and was forgiven by him. He wrote 1 Peter and he says in chapter 2 verse 22, neither was there guile in him. In him there was no S-I-N. Say it. Sin. Sin. Now, nobody's ever said that about you. Nobody's ever said it about me. If they did say it, they were wrong. Now, sometimes you may say to your beautiful girlfriend, you are perfect. Guys, I want to tell you, there ain't no gal who's perfect. and Husbands, there ain't no husband that's perfect. Except your wife's former husband. Now, I'm joking you a little bit to make the point. In him was no sin. He was absolutely sinless according to his friend. But what do his enemies say? Pontius Pilate. Chapter 18 in John and chapter 19, the last part of chapter 18, beginning of chapter 19, not once, not twice, three times, Pilate says the same thing. Here it is, quoting verbatim, I find no fault in him. Now, here's a man who's not his best buddy. Here's a man who could have delivered him, and he didn't. But he said, I don't find anything wrong with him. So his sinless life testified by his friends and by his foes. But then listen to his words. One of the wonderful things about Jesus and his teaching that I love is the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. You didn't listen to Jesus talk and say, well, he's a great scholar. I didn't understand a word he said, but he must be mighty smart. Listen, if you're very smart, people will understand what you write and what you say. It's only stupid people who can't be understood. Jesus was not that way. The Bible says about him that even the common people heard him gladly. And then he goes on to say, he didn't speak as the scribes and Pharisees, like the religious leaders of that day and time. He spoke as one having authority. And when you hear the words of Jesus They're words that have authority. Take the Gospel of John again just as an example. You may have studied the seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. The first one's in chapter 6. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. Nobody but God could talk that way. And yet every one of those are quotations right out of the lips of Jesus. His words were spoken with authority. He was what he said he was. He backed it up, not only with his words, but his works. His works, if there's one word that characterizes his words, it's authority. If there's one word that characterizes his works, it's power. He worked miracles with power. Again, look at the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, he finds Nicodemus. He changed his life. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, he found the woman at the well who'd been married five times and now was living with a common-law husband, and he changed her life. And she began to tell others about Jesus. In chapter 5, he's at the pool of Siloam, and a man who'd been there for 38 years, he touches him and heals him and (coughs) completely changes his life. A religious wreck in Nicodemus. A moral wreck in the woman at the well. And a physical wreck in the, at the pool of Siloam. Every one of them, Jesus touched their life. Mark 5, he finds the community crazy man. A demoniac from Gadara who's running around, taking off his clothes naked, cutting himself, screaming. And then the Bible says, Jesus touched him. And they found him. Seated and clothed and in his right mind. Only God could do something like that. And yet Jesus did. Now what am I saying? I'm saying his words were, word, works were works that were performed with divine power. His words were spoken with authority. His life, when you examined it, whether you were a friend or an enemy, you found nothing wrong with him. And when you looked at his conception... It was a miracle. No one had ever had a babe like the Virgin Mary did. Those are early hints at it, but now listen to me carefully. If I stop right here, and that's the gospel we have. It's all good news. Everything I've said is true. Everything is right here in the Bible. But if I stopped here, there would be no gospel, and he would not be Lord. Why? Because the one thing, the final thing, the climactic thing... That made him Lord was his climactic, triumphant resurrection from the dead when he was crucified. We sing about it, we talk about it, but I hope we live it that kind of life. In other words, the resurrection is what historically revealed what had always been true. Now, he didn't become Lord at the resurrection. He already was Lord, but the resurrection is what revealed him. You see... Earlier in his life, his own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. Some of his disciples didn't. You remember Thomas? He said, I won't believe unless I can put my hand there and I can put my hand in his side. Thomas wasn't, listen to me, Thomas didn't show up at church that first Sunday night. But he did miss again after that, I bet you. I have a sermon on this page, don't miss church on Sunday night. If you have church on Sunday night, don't. Thomas said, finally, when he came there, he put his hand here and he put his hand here. He said what? My Lord and my what? God. Thomas said, he is Lord, he is God. What group validated that? Jesus had been nailed to a Roman cross three hours, spirit thirst through his heart, uh, <coughs> a crown of thorns on his head, Nails in his hands and his feet, and he died. <coughs> the Bible said he gave up the ghost and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. But three days later, triumphant over sin, death, hell, and the grave, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. But listen, he had raised other people from the dead. You remember Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Lazarus? As far as we know, they died again. We don't have anybody claiming that they've seen the widow of Nain's son or Jairus' daughter or Lazarus running around. They died again. Jesus died, rose again, never to die again. That's why we have a living Lord. That's why we have hope today. That's why we proclaim him as Lord. The resurrection was the climax of his lordship. It revealed what had already been true. He really was Lord. Quickly, every Bible teaching has a practical side. So what? So if he really is this, so what? If he's really Lord, so what? Let me just take three words out of the Bible, love, faith, and hope, and show you how that's related to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. First of all, an implication from it is that it has implications for our love that we show, the faith that we preach, and the hope that we have. The love that we show is here seen in the Bible as a product of the resurrection. That is, if Jesus Christ is really Lord, it's going to be translated in the way we love. Let me get very practical, very personal. First of all, the love we show to other denominations. Now hear me, listen, listen. I am a Baptist. I'm an Alabama Baptist. I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm proud to be a Baptist. But listen to me carefully. We are not the only ones going to heaven. Everyone, anywhere in the world who acknowledges Jesus as Lord, regardless of what denominational flag is on top of their church, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to say so. We need to show them so. If we're not careful, we Baptists can end up being ecclesiastical snobs where we turn our nose up at everybody else. Now, there's some of them that do the same thing, you know, you ever heard of anybody that said, if you've not been baptized in their church, you're not going to heaven? Let me, since I've mentioned that, let me tell you. A while back, I was doing a very spiritual thing. I was riding a horse right down here in Chilton County. <laughs> Dusty road, here I go stride that good Tennessee walking horse, and there, here comes a man up beside me. I'd never seen him before. We begin to ride along. Of course, we're out there, just two of us, and we begin to talk. He found out that I was a preacher. You know that I always asked, what do you do? And I won't go into all that I said to him, but we talked. And lo and behold, he was a preacher. He was the pastor of the second largest church of Christ in Alabama, the Homewood Church of Christ, right down Lakeshore Drive from Sanford University. Several months after that initial meeting, we became good friends. We talked. I'm a Baptist, he's a church of Christ. He calls me one day and asked to meet me, and we talked about Sunday school, how to grow Sunday school. And we walked out of Red Lobster Restaurant right there in Vestavia. He put his arms on my shoulder, and he said, Charles, I want to say something to you that you never thought you'd hear from a church of Christ. He said, you are my brother in Christ. I said, Wayne, I'm glad you know that. I've known that all the time. <laughs> Well, I joked with him a little bit because there wasn't any question in my mind. I was going to heaven. I just wanted to be sure he knew it. Today, many of you read the writings of Max Lucado, a wonderful writer, very gifted, and a wordsmith. I read his book, devotional book every morning of my life. He's a Church of Christ preacher out in San Antonio, Texas. If he were standing here today, he would say to you, every one of you who knows Jesus is Lord are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if Brother Mike baptized you in a Baptist church, you're still going to heaven. I'm glad they're getting more open-minded. I hope we will do the same thing. Now, my whole point is this. Why do we need to show love to other denominations? For this reason, among others, there are many seething social issues in our world today Baptists will never solve alone the pornographic traffic, the abortion problem, the alcohol problem, the drug problem. All of these are far bigger than Baptists can ever solve alone. We need our brothers in Christ, and they need us. And we need to say, unapologetically, if they're Christian and they believe Jesus is Lord, they are our brothers in Christ. But then, can I get a little more personal? I told you there's a practical side to lordship. Not only what we, the love we show to other denominations, the love we show to other races. I'm talking about people who are different from you, whether they're yellow or red or black. Anywhere there's difference of color, there can be problems. And we have come a long way, but we've got a long way to go yet. I thank God that you've opened your doors of your church to Anybody, regardless of the color of their skin, as long as Jesus is their Lord. If he is, they are our brothers in Christ. But dear friend, we're living in a world in which many people don't believe that. Less than 50 miles from where we're worshiping this morning... Several years ago, I stood in a little country church of which I was pastor, and in the back door walked 10 hooded Ku Klux Klansmen. I won't tell you what I said to them. (laughs) Seriously, it happened in Alabama in the 20th century. People who thought because of the pigmentation of your skin You are not a part of the family of God. That is a diabolical lie. God is no respecter of persons. And we need to say that. And therefore we preach a whosoever will gospel. Anyone, anywhere, will make Jesus Lord become a part of the family of God. We need to say it to other denominations. We need to say it to other races. Now some of you are saying, Amen preacher, amen. I believe that, I believe that. You know what? Some of us in this building this morning probably have more problem loving other Baptists than we do other denominations and other races. Oh, you can sing the song, Oh, How I Love Jesus, but you don't like the guy sitting down on the pew from you, do you? You know what I'm talking about? Nobody's come up here telling me all these tales about you, but we're human beings and there are people in the church. We don't lie. Can I get more personal one of the hotbeds in many Christian churches today is music. Can you believe it? Paula would say amen to this. Listen, <clears throat> everybody doesn't have to like your kind of music to know Jesus go to heaven when they die. Amen. What? Amen. What? Amen. Don't you forget it. Now, I'm not asking you to change, don't misunderstand. I'm not asking you to come to the 8 o'clock service where we sing hymns. I'm not asking them to come to this service where we sing praise song. Listen, if we love Jesus and he is Lord of our life, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And my appeal to well we ought to act like that toward one another and not say, I don't like that kind of music, or I don't like those kind of people, or I don't like that kind of song. I don't like... Forget it, dear friend. Get over it. If Jesus is their Lord... Welcome them with arms wide open. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Quickly, not only in the love we show, but in the faith we preach. I want you to listen carefully that I'm not misunderstood here. A real danger that many Christians in general and Baptists in particular face today, and that is making a dichotomy, a division, between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. I actually heard a preacher less than a year ago stand in the church and say, as he gave the invitation, many of you have accepted Jesus as Savior and the years gone by. Don't you want to come and make him your Lord today? I nearly fell out of the pew. I absolutely said, I can't believe that I'm hearing this. Paul's hair would have stood on end at such idea of that. You say, Brother Carter, what do you mean? I told you earlier, the word L-O-R-D is found 250 times in the New Testament. Go home this afternoon and check it. I won't give you all the references I could. The word S-A-V-I-O-R. What? Savior is found 16 times. 16. Some books of the New Testament, it's not even found there. The word Lord is 250 times now you don't have to be a phd in theology to understand the main name of jesus is lord now when i make him the lord of my life one of the wonderful byproducts is he saves me from my sin but that's not where the emphasis is the emphasis is i make him the lord of my life you say brother carter you're making it sound like you have got to be perfect deal to heaven no 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 don't you ever get that idea you don't have to be perfect but listen to me carefully you do have to be perfectly committed to Jesus as Lord and we need to say that loudly and clearly, can you imagine those of you who have seen brother Mike do a wedding here at this church a couple standing up here and he's about to perform them and he says to him do you promise to love and honor her and cherish her above all others so long as you boast to live and old John down there says yes sir except for Susan and Mary and Joanne. What? I'm joking you a little bit. You know what would happen if some guy said that. She'd say, get lost. It is me and nobody else, so there ain't going to be no wedding. Amen? And we men would say the same thing, so I'm just using the lady. Listen, it doesn't mean we become perfect. It means we are perfectly committed and when we're perfectly committed there's only one number one. What I'm saying is Jesus must be Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. There is no idea here. I take him as my Savior and if I decide later I want to really get dedicated I make him the Lord of my life. I make him Lord and he saves me from my sin. Now what I'm saying is That's the message we proclaim. And having not proclaimed it, you know what's happened? I'll just give it to you in numbers. 25% of our members are non-resident. You know what that means? That's a glorified title to say they moved off and took everything with them except the church membership. They took the refrigerator, they took the TV, took the cat, cut the dog, cut the automobile, took the kids, but they left the church membership right here in Shelby County. We don't even know where some of them are. 25% of the average Southern Baptist church members are nowhere to be found. We call them non-resident. Another 50% don't ever come to church. On any given Sunday, you couldn't seek the people that belong to your church if they all showed up here on one Sunday. And, and you're not indifferent. different. My church is the same way. Other churches that way. 50% don't come on any given Sunday. Can it get worse? Sure. 20% of the members of the average Southern Baptist church give 80% of the income. 30% give 20%. Now, if you've done your math, you know where I'm going. 50% give Z-E-R-O. Say it. Zero. Louder. Zero. Louder. Zero. I don't believe God likes that. Do you? No. That means... If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of my pocketbook. I'm not here to say you've got a tithe to go to heaven. I believe if you're a Christian, you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul. You will, but I'll leave that to you. I'm just saying to you, dear that those facts I just gave you are a commentary upon our lack of emphasizing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the, the heart of our Christian faith. Quickly, not only is it the love we show, the faith we proclaim, but the hope that we have. You and I today share a hope. That is, we have a hope as far as our past is concerned. My sins are underneath the blood of Jesus. But it isn't just then. We have a hope for the future. Some people say that's just pie in the sky by and by when you die. Listen, everybody needs a little pie in the sky once in a while. I do, you do when you come to the cemetery to know that I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The hope we have, Paul put it the best in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we're Christians. That's why we have hope. That's what the Lordship is all about. It's the love we show to one another it's the faith we preach to a lost and dying world. It's the hope that we have. No wonder the hymn writer said, All hell, the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown him what? Lord of all. Will you bow together with us for just a moment? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I hope you've understood what I've tried to say. The one way that we all become Christians is to make Jesus number one in our life. That's it in a nutshell. You'll say, well, Charles, I'm not sure I've done it. I'm not asking, are you perfect? I'm asking, is he number one above everything and everyone else? Is he number one? If he's not today, you can just walk the aisle of this church and say, I want to make him that way. Young people, you can come. Moms and dads, you can come. You may not have even come to church this morning thinking about doing this, but that doesn't make it a difference. God's here and you're here and he's ready to do business. And You'd say, I want to do that right now, right where you're sitting. The Bible says if you'll confess, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. saved. It can happen right here. In a moment, we're going to pray and then sing a simple hymn. I'm going to ask you to move out and come to make sure Jesus is Lord of your life. Heavenly Father, with all of our heart, we thank you today that indeed you're King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you for that. We thank you for that. And I pray right now, anyone here who cannot say sincerely, truthfully, He is my Lord and my God. Now step out on the first note of the hymn. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand together, and as we stand, Brother Don is here, Brother Paul is here. We'll welcome you as you come on the very first note of the invitation hymn right now. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.